welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Keelan McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley reporting on the October 27th rally at the Capitol calling for peace in the Middle East. Then EP, Elizabeth E.P. Press brings us an interview with Irene Sorrento, the Republican candidate for Troy City Council's District 5 seat. Later on, we hear about Museum Hue, a nonprofit group helping BIPOC folks start and thrive in careers in museum and art galleries and other cultural organizations. That after that, Sina Basil Hickey talks with Phyllis Galembo about her recent photography exhibit, Dress for the Thrills, 100 Years of Halloween Costumes and Masquerade. Finally, Hugh Johnson is back for our weekly exploration, exploration of climate and weather, this time focusing on tropical storm that hit the Acapelico, the anniversaries of a couple storms in the region, and a forecast for Halloween and beyond. But first, here are your headlines. The Troy Police Department is investigating a shooting that happened Monday morning in the area of 2nd Avenue near 111th Street. Police say the victim suffered a minor injury to his side. The Times Union reports that Mary Lou, born in wealth and privilege, who who became a warrior for social justice and founder of the free school in the mansion neighborhood and guiding spirits to a collective of 60s hippies who lived communally, died on October 15th. She was 103 years old. At least 42 colleges in New York, as well as institutions around the country, are increasingly under attack by groups of men alleging that programs or scholarships promoting gender equity or diversity are discriminating on the basis of sex and race and are just anti-male and anti-whites. Many schools have already ended or adjusted such programs in response to the complaints. The Albany-Troy-Schenectady area was rated as the 42nd worst in the country for rats in the annual rating. A slight improvement over last year, though it is now the second worst in the state. New York City remains the worst spot in the state, dropping one spot to number three nationwide, while Chicago for the ninth year in a row was the worst for rats. The Times Union reports that colony pimp Christopher Thomas, who at one point operated out of the Albany County Jail, was sentenced to 40 years in federal prison Monday for sex trafficking 10 victims, including underage teenagers, in a crime the judge described as, quote, a special kind of evil. The Times Union also reminds voters that the ballots in the current election include two proposals, one to eliminate debt eliminations on small school districts and another to eliminate spending restrictions on sewage-related projects. And that's it for your headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talent, or financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Or call us at 518-272-2390. Now to our first story, the deadly conflict in the Middle East, 
continues. On Friday, the group's Jewish Voices for Peace and the Palestinian Rights Committee joined others in a rally at the Capitol calling for an end to the conflict. Mark Dunley was there and brings us this report. With Israel having launched an all-out assault on the Palestinians trapped in the occupied Gaza territory, large rallies calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the apartheid system maintained by Israel have broken out across the United States and the world, though they have largely been ignored by the mainstream American media. While most condemned the killing of civilians by any party, whether Hamas or Israel, they also say that the treatment of Gaza as an open-air prison or a concentration camp by Israel must end, along with the role of the United States in allowing such war crimes to continue. The United States has repeatedly blocked UN resolutions for a ceasefire. A number of rallies have taken place in the capital district, including one on Sunday by the local Muslim community. HMM covered a rally at the Capitol on Friday, October 27, that was initiated by a Pakistani student at a local uh, medical college with support from groups like Jewish Voices for Peace and the Palestinian Rights Committee of the Capitol District. One Israeli citizen spoke while holding her six-month-old son, her voice breaking as she thought about other parents being forced to worry about medical treatment for their children at a time when all electricity and water has been cut off in Gaza and many medical facilities have been under attack. The fate of children was in the minds of many. We hear from three speakers, Taina Akhtar, the Pakistani student who initiated the event, Tom Ellis of the Palestinian Rights Committee, and Samira Sanger of Saratoga Black Lives Matter. So my name is Kaina Akhtar, and I don't really, I'm not really representing a specific organization today. I kind of held this rally in hopes everyone would come with no organizations or affiliations. And I wanted to hold this rally because when I was four years old and I moved to America, it was three months before 9-11. And seeing all of the after effects that my people in Pakistan and Afghanistan had to go through, this is just another reminder of that. And I see the world reacting the same way it did a few years ago. And it's just heartbreaking that we're repeating the same mistakes all over again. And how would you say that they are reacting at the moment? I think we've been working so hard over the past like 10, 12 years to kind of get rid of this Islamophobic um, rhetoric out of the general population. And we had been doing so well, I mean, in my own personal opinion, but I've been hearing reports of students being um, treated unfairly, um, not feeling comfortable speaking up in the classrooms, in the middle schools, in the high schools. Um, so I, I want to make sure that they know that they still have a voice and they still can speak up for what they believe in. Now, you are a medical student, and so obviously one of the concerns has been a number of people uh, in Gaza and also in Israel who have been injured. But, you know, what sort of the perspective of the medical community has this type of uh, carnage taking place? Yeah, so I'm not a medical student, a Ph.D. student. I think that sometimes in our classrooms we would be reminded of the Hippocratic Oath and how we should care for everyone equally regardless of race and religion. And bringing that rhetoric in, I think it's valid. But at the same time, 
the, the things that are happening in, in the hospital, there, there's no way to not take sides and, and to speak up for the people who are truly being hurt every single day for the children who are losing their lives every single day. And if any of our you know, top elected officials, President Biden, was to walk by, what, what would you say to the president and our, and our leadership at this moment? What should they be doing? I am so disappointed. To be honest, I really do want to speak to Governor Kathy specifically because when she became governor, I felt so mixed emotions were everywhere because she was one of the first women governors that we have. Um, and just to see her failing so badly, um, not having that compassion, it's so sad. Um, I think women in power often forget um, that it's okay to still have compassion and humanity. And I hope that Kathy remembers that instead of what is politically correct for her. Thank you very much. So one of the other participants uh, is Tom Ellis of the Palestinian Rights Committee. And on the way over, uh, Tom, you were mentioning that the media is not doing a particularly good job explaining what is going on. What are some of the points that people need to hear that may not be getting from the mainstream media at this point about the situation in, in Gaza and Israel? Well, there's a couple of things. One of them is that in nearly all of the written news analysis and in the audio and video that I've heard, that the core of the issue was never discussed. You know, why do the Palestinians and the Israelis continue to fight against each other? Why can't they resolve this conflict? And I think the reason that they can't resolve the conflict is because the leaders of Israel adhere to uh, a Zionist ideology, which is basically a Jewish supremacist ideology that the Israeli Jews are going to make all the decisions in, in Israel and in Palestine, and that the Palestinians are just going to have to put up with it. And that mindset also justifies the ethnic cleansing that's been going on for 75 years and the massacres and the pogroms and the house demolitions that's occurring now. So the solution of the conflict, I think, cannot occur until the leaders of Israel eliminate that extreme form of Zionism and accept that the Palestinians have at least as much right to live there as, they, as Jewish people do and that they have at least as much right to total equality, one person, one vote. Everybody has the same rights, one system of government, one system of laws, one system of justice. Now, it has been remarkable in many ways that the, the amount of support on the streets uh, for uh, Palestinian rights here in the United States, but that is not at all translated into any changes positions of you know, the political leadership, starting with, with President Biden, but certainly here in New York across the board. Why in particular is the Democratic Party seemingly so disconnected from their own base of support on this particular issue? Uh, I'm not certain, but I think part of it has to do with that. For decades, the leaders of Israel and some American Jewish leaders and a lot of American politicians have demonized the Palestinians, calling them terrorists and animals. And when you demonize people, you don't really see their humanity. And demonizing people leads to pogroms and murders and assassinations and to the genocide. And, you know, Jewish people should know that better than anybody because they've been subjected to horrific slurs for 2,000 years. And it culminated in the Holocaust 80 years ago. So I think that if the American politicians could get away from that language or stop calling Palestinians terrorists and animals and start thinking of them as real people who have real rights, then maybe they wouldn't be so willing to finance and support the, the killing of them.
Thank you, Tom Ellis, Palestinian Rights Committee. Next, we hear from Samira Sanger of Black Lives Matter. But the fact is that I and Saratoga BLM and all black movements fight for the liberation of oppressed people. And this is, in my opinion, this is not a war, right? This is a genocide. This is a one-sided fight. I'm happy that we mentioned the West Bank and how Hamas is not even in the West Bank. And I'm not gonna forget the years and decades of ethnic cleansing, the bombings on Eid every single year. I'm not gonna forget that this literally checks off all 10 stages of genocide. I really, I, I don't have much to say. I felt compelled to come up here. I felt compelled from the, pe from the people speaking today. There's a ceasefire, right? Yeah, we want a ceasefire. We want the end of genocide. But in my opinion, Palestinians need autonomy over their own land. People in Africa, we fight for liberation in Africa, in Niger, where they just kicked out the French. How about that? Apartheid, just like in South Africa, just like we fight against the settler colonialism in Palestine. And you know, it just makes me think about how we shouldn't even be here. None of us in the U.S. The U.S. was made from genocide. Thank to Moses Nagel for helping with the audio. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Mark Dunley talking with Kanat Akhtar, a student who initiated the October 27th rally, Tom Ellis of the Palestinian Rights Committee, Samar Sangera of the Saratoga Black Lives Matter. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine for Mark's coverage from other rallies and events. And next, as part of her continuing election coverage, Elizabeth E.P. Press speaks with Irene Soriento, the Republican candidate for Troy City Council, District 5. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we are continuing our election watch and our coverage of who's running for Troy City Council with Irene Soriento, who is running for Troy City Council, District 5. Irene, mm -hmm. welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So Irene, you sit right now on Troy City Council, but in District 6. Can you tell us a little bit about how this comes to be that you're now running in District 5? They changed the, the district lines. And where I live in Emerald Greens is now part of District 5 and no longer will be District 6. Um, so now it covers all of Pauling Avenue. It covers Emerald Greens half of the one side of Campbell's Avenue, part of Winter Street and uh, like Hamilton Avenue. Um, and it goes all the way um, as far as like Euclid Avenue. It's a really, really big district to cover. A lot of walking, but uh, the residents, they're really great. So Irene, you mentioned walking. I imagine maybe yes. you're referring going door to door. What are you hearing from constituents in District 5 about what they want to see happen and what they need less crime the garbage tax is ridiculous they want they want more services not really more services they want the services that they're actually paying for and i have to agree with them right now the basic services are just not meeting 
the expectations of what us as taxpayers are paying for. And it's really, it's really unfortunate, but I want to keep pushing and give something in return to our residents. What are you hearing? Is it that how much the increase in garbage fees went up and, and what do you propose we do about this? So uh, it was supposed to initially be a temporary fee. And I believe it was like when it started, um, it was like about $60. That was way before I was on the council. And it just keeps going up and up and up. And now the mayor's budget, there's a proposal to increase it by $2. I know $2 doesn't seem like a lot, but it really is. I mean, right now, you know, with the inflation and everything, $1 can't even buy you a 25 cent pack of gum. (laughs) We're, We're all struggling on trying to, you know, Um, keep a roof over our heads and put, you know, food on the table. I think that instead of taxing the residents to death, there's got to be a different way of trying to keep these taxes and these rates low. And with this garbage tax, I want to help in any way I can to try and phase this out because it was initially a part of our taxes. And now it's a separate tax and it's just becoming really unaffordable now. And does it hurt the city if residents start switching over to some of the private companies? It is now, yes, because uh, that is going to be a loss of revenue for the city. And my worry is that it's going to end up being fully privatized and we're going to have employees lose their jobs. And I'm, I'm really scared about that. There's got to be other solutions and I'm looking to further explore them because um, just the way this program has been developed years ago, and it was supposed to be a temporary. Now, temporary for me means one year, not moving forward from one year to the next and increasing it uh, drastically. It doesn't seem like a, a temporary tax to, you know, fill the budget gap. I'm also seeing with this uh, proposed budget, there's a lot of vacancies. And yet in the proposed budget, they want to create $100,000 management positions, and then also add another $30,000 increase to the superintendent of public utilities. I'm not understanding why we're focusing on management positions when we have vacant positions that are in a lower level title. We're not, I don't see how these management positions are going to benefit the the taxpayers, the residents of Troy. There's got to be a, a different structure on, on, on this. You got to start from, from the bottom up. You really have to build that foundation before you can build your house. <laughs> Yeah, it's a complex situation with a ton of vacancies. And it's also if there's no one to manage those positions, then that also (laughs) becomes a problem. So it's like coming at you from both sides. But Irene, you are chair of the Public Utilities Committee in Troy City Council as it stands right now. What are some things that have come across your committee's desk? The lead service replacement project. We've all, we all know about the issues with the lead. Our last public utilities meeting that we had concerning the budget, we also talked about like how filters are now being rolled out. 
they're working they're working on replacing the lead pipes which is it, it's good um i want to stress though the importance of every resident um getting that inventory submitted over to the water department um because we have to be at 100 percent inventory i believe by next year so we really have to stress that because that could potentially affect our um, any type of funding that we could receive um, towards this lead replacement project. The head of public works did step down. Is this the position that we were just discussing and it sits vacant right now? It's actually funny that you say that because we had a meeting this week, but the meeting prior to that, I looked at the vacancy list and I didn't see that title listed on the vacancy. But by the time that I realized that the meeting was already over with, so I brought it up at this past meeting. Is there an error? Like we were told, surprisingly, no, it's not an error. Chris Whelan is actually filling that position on a part-time basis. I was a little surprised and uh, it looked like a lot of the council members were surprised because we were never told that. We were told that he was resigning, he's leaving, goodbye, but technically it's filled. Um, but we're told on a part-time basis as a council, we asked, you know, like what, what the salary is. I, we didn't get an answer on that. So. Wow. I thought he took yes. a job somewhere else for more pay. That's, I guess he's filling it part-time to help out, which, you know, I appreciate that. I really do, but we should have known that. Now there's a few more large issues that I wanted to get at. Harbor Point Gardens is in your district, District 6. Um, yes. We've known that there's been this evacuations and series of city council meetings and hearings to try to get to Correct. the bottom of what happened at yep. Harbor Point Gardens. Could you give us, from your point of view, sort of where this debacle stands? As far as I was told that um, at all the apartments now are where the residents were displaced, they meet the minimum code standards. It still wouldn't be to my expectations, but I guess, you know, I mean, that's what the law is that it meets the minimum code standards. And I believe that those violations, the major ones have been corrected. I believe 35 uh, residents though ended up leaving. They just, they had enough. They suffered all summer. I'm sure that they spent a ton of money just on the food expenses because they were they were staying in hotels for months um, and not having a kitchen to cook a, you know, a decent warm meal. And um, they had to eat out every day and that gets really expensive. There's a lot of focus um, that needs to be put in into that whole ordeal to make sure that this never happens again. We really need code enforcement to start enforcing them even more. I mean, do some regular checks we got to develop some kind of plan, some kind of procedure. It's a really unfortunate uh, situation that everybody, you know, has went through and experienced. You know, you had an exciting race for city council last time. I think it was uh, a three-way race between you yeah. and Kennedy yeah. and uh, Marquita Edwards. What have you sort of learned from your experience on city council and what should our audience know about you when they go to the voting booth? So overall, I do have 20 years of experience in local government. I started in 2003 working for the city of Troy as an account clerk. I was uh, a tax collector. 
issuing parking permits, issuing the handicap parking tags, such a fun job. Um, then I worked my way up into uh, working for civil service. And then in 2018, I left city of Troy and started working um, as the human resources manager for the city of Rensselaer. My one goal right now is to develop an employee recognition program for the employees to acknowledge the hard work that they're, you know, that they're doing. My standpoint, you know, being on the council is we do have to look out for the taxpayers and we also have to look out for the employees. The employees overall, they are the staple of our community. Our city can't run without them. And so they play a uh, really important part part of um, of our city. So we got to find some kind of middle ground here. Irene, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure you say today? The main reason why I wanted to run is because as a taxpayer myself, I felt that when I stood up there in front of the city council, some of the council members did listen to me, but some of them rolled their eyes at me and I felt like my voice wasn't being heard. And I, I felt that that was a need for me to run for city council, be on there and make sure that all voices, you know, make sure that they're being heard. I do, I do take every concern into consideration and try to work out a, a solution. Irene Soriento running for Troy City Council District 5. Thanks for joining us on the Hudson Thank Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. Thanks to Elizabeth EP Press for our ongoing election coverage. See a full list of her recent candidate interviews by clicking on the Election Watch 2023 button at our website, mediasanctuary.org. Remember to vote. Election Day is Tuesday, November 7th. Early voting has already started and runs through November 5th. For those just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel. Hi, Bria, and I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at Media Sanctuary. .org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just by telling your friends to tune us in. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories, past segments, full episodes, and more at mediasanctuary.org. Turning now to the arts, we'll hear about how the nonprofit group Museum Hue supports Black, Indigenous, and other people of color who are in or interested in a career in museums and art-related organizations, and also works to expand the diversity of representation in such places. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I recently heard of a nonprofit out of the Brooklyn area that has a very interesting focus. So. With me is, perhaps you could introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Sierra Van Richtegroot, and I'm the deputy director for Museum Hue. Museum Hue, H-U-E. And this is a nonprofit organization started just a few years ago that has been growing. And tell us about the purpose of your organization. So Museum Hue was founded as an organization for museum workers of color, and we've since expanded to include 
arts and culture workers of color across all disciplines. So performing arts, visual arts, music, etc. So we've really gone beyond just museums. Why is it important to have this kind of membership organization? It's incredibly important for folks of color to have a space to connect in the midst of all that is going on in the world, in addition to what's going on in our individual museum spaces. Museums are predominantly white spaces in in terms of not just audience, but also in staffing. And so we do find that folks of color often are in need of support, whether it is around issues that they're facing, conversations they want to have, exhibitions they want to have, as well as just getting professional development. We know that opportunities are often limited based off of your background, your class, socioeconomics. And so we want to make sure that folks have access to everything they can possibly have in addition to providing the support once you are in the sector. I'm aware of the importance of having a representation from various groups within our institutions, but maybe you can say a little bit about what's going on with museums and what the challenges are. Yeah, this is a really pivotal and important time for arts and culture and especially museums. We know museums as places to preserve and exhibit and celebrate the human culture, human history, but we also know them as spaces that were really born out of uh, colonialism. The original museums were just collections of things that people had gotten on their travels or had purchased from folks who had been traveling about. And um, now we're in a moment in 2023 where we are talking about not just what is in the museum space in terms of how we receive those items that were on display and the conversations of repatriation to cultures that may have had things taken from them in less than favorable manners. But we're also having conversations about the people who preserve and do the work that make museums more than just boxes of things, like rooms with things. We are talking about the support that they have to have these difficult conversations about these histories, to correctly interpret and tell the stories of these pieces. And then we're also having a conversation about the value of this work. Museum workers and arts and culture workers are incredibly skilled professionals, but we find that we have some of the lowest wages um, in some of the, the sectors that you see, especially in New York City. And so we want to make sure that we are having the conversations that need to be had, not just about what is in the museum, but also about who is working in the museum spaces and how they're treated. So you said it's a membership organization for people working in these various areas, but then you are also working with organizations. And you said you have some advocacy programs coming up. Let's hear about that. Absolutely. So um, starting actually November 1st, we'll have our very first program. We're kind of demystifying the advocacy process for arts organizations in New York State in particular. One of the things that um, has come up through some of the projects that we've done over the last few years is a lot of arts organizations don't know how much advocacy they can do with government officials, with um, funders and donors to advocate not just for themselves, but for funding for the arts, funding for culture, funding for science. And so this series is really dedicated to making sure that um, folks know what they can do legally. I mean, obviously, there is a fine line for arts nonprofit funding, but then um, there's also the sense of trying to uh, give folks all the tools that they need. It's not just saying, oh, we're going to go start advocating. We want to make sure that folks know all the tips and tricks. You know, some of the larger institutions have government affairs, like jobs and departments and lobbyists that they have on 
on call to do all this advocacy work for them behind the scenes? How can you as a small to medium-sized nonprofit get similar access and presence to your elected officials to really reiterate the importance of your space and make sure that they see you as an important part of the community? And then in terms of establishing oneself in organizations, you have some training called HUE, H-U-E, University. Yeah, so um, we do love our puns, but our university series is really around providing support and access to resources as well as other professionals for early career professionals looking to join the arts and culture sector. We kick this off actually in September and have had several sessions already around cover letters and resume writing. Uh, we've also talked about application processes and what it looks like to have, you know, a nine to five job, so to speak, but also be pursuing things of interest in your quote unquote five to nine um, <laughs> after hours. And then uh, we also have this upcoming session, which will actually be the first week of November as well, is on internships, which I think a lot of people can't believe that we're talking about internships so early, but some of the big museum um, and arts and culture internships start uh, their applications open in late November, early December. So we want to make sure folks have the tools and um, advice they need to kind of start that process. We know that internships are often that big foot in the door for a lot of people, so we want to make sure everyone's equipped. As a former college educator, I understand the importance of internships, and as somebody who benefited from internships herself many years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's wonderful. Now, uh, your membership is all over the country? Yes, well, we do have a national presence, and we are currently, like many folks, trying to expand outside of our withdrawn COVID bubble. We kind of really focus primarily on New York because that's where we are based, but we are looking to reach back out a lot more, have an in-person presence across the rest of the U.S. So you are doing virtual programs. It's not just limited to the people in Brooklyn. Absolutely. We have virtual programs and we are starting to pick back up our in-person, so we want to do a little bit of both all over. Are there any events coming up that people might be interested in? Yeah, so we just mentioned the advocacy event in the first week of November. That series will be going on through November and December. So I highly recommend that you visit our website at museumhue.org. And we are also really looking forward to sharing about the university series as well. That's continuing and we are actually really looking forward to doing an in-person convening for that series in January in New York City. So if folks are around in the city and are looking to kind of utilize the skills that they've learned from university that will be available. <laughs> I want to go back to a word that you said toward the beginning, repatriation. And certainly with the return of remains to Native communities primarily, you represent not just people of African-American background, but people of color? Yes, we seek to provide a space for all folks of color, so Black, Indigenous, Latino or Latinx, um, as well as Asian and, of course, Indigenous folks, whether they identify as Indian or First Peoples. How large is your membership? So our membership, we have over 400 institutional members, ranging from organizations with budgets as small as like 50,000 to expansive institutions with budgets over 8 million. So we really do have a full breadth of membership. And we also have individual memberships. We have a brand new student membership, or early career is actually the correct term. We are trying to be more inclusive. So we have an early career membership that is about $20, and our individual membership otherwise is $30 for folks of color as well as allies, so folks who do 
who do not identify as folks of color as well can be members of the organization. And then when you say organizational memberships, there are museums and other art-related institutions. Can you name some of the ones that you are working with most prominently? Yes, we do have a really wonderful relationship with the folks over at the Museum Association of New York, which is actually based pretty locally in Troy. A variety of Smithsonian institutions are members. We also have a membership that includes some small historic houses like uh, the Lewis Latimer House in Queens, New York. We also have members that we have quite a few members. I'm trying to think of like really good names to give you outside (laughs) of those, but a good range. That's great. And I'm talking with Sierra here at the Albany Institute of History and Art, where they're having an educational program on October 28th. I'm so glad that I heard about the program and I'm able to be here. And thank you. My guest again is? This is Sierra Van Richter, the Deputy Director of Museum Hugh. Thank you, Sierra. And the website for more information is? It was museumhue.org. Thanks a lot. This is Bria Barthel signing off. And for more information, including job postings, as well as details of all those upcoming events and training opportunities in early November, check the website. That's again, museumhue.org. Now, a different and timely art story, Sina Bazilla Hickey, brings us this interview with her former professor, Phyllis Galembo, about her photography exhibit on Halloween costumes and masquerades. <laughs> Phyllis Galembo is a photographer and a professor emeritus at the University at Albany. She built a career photographing ritual dress and masquerade from around the world. And today I'm talking with Phyllis Galembo about her project, Dressed for Thrills, 100 Years of Halloween, Costumes and Masquerade. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. One of my favorite older students, older meaning a while ago that you graduated from SUNY Albany. Yeah, it was a while ago. And and I've always really admired your photographs. And your website, galembo.com, has a great selection of your work. And this series is a little bit different from the rest. But before you even just get into that, I think the overarching theme is ritual masquerade. What was it about that that really draws you to photograph this? And you continue to do it from different, from, from different angles. Right. I know my interest in costume, I think some of these things began when I was like a little girl, you know, when I was growing up. You know, Jewish, and the, there was a um, you know holiday known as Purim, and we always dressed up in little costumes that my grandmother made for me with little bric-a-brac, and I liked to do that, become Queen Esther and stuff like that. And then I was always very fond of you know trick-or-treating and dressing up as a beatnik and going around the neighborhood. So I've always kind of enjoyed Halloween, and you know when I started doing photography early on, it's funny because it was stuff like couple of pictures I look back of some people in some masks, but I also grew up at a time when, you know, the artist Ralph Eugene Meatyard was very popular and Diane Arbus's Halloween photographs were, you know, these were the kind of things I looked at when I was like in school or maybe even in graduate school. And I just started, you know, first I was doing a lot of like very funky kind of you know, sets and making things, you know, making cardboard sets and working with other people. 
And then I kind of dropped that. I had the chance to go to Nigeria and I was photographing ritual dress there. And one thing sort of led to another. And I ended up sort of, you know, sticking with those same kind of themes, you know, they seem alike, but they're all very different. You know, some of them have to do with like religious rituals, like things like photographing a condom blade, you know, clothing. I focus, I'm always doing like mainly portraits of people. So those were like priests and priestesses in their ritual dress, probably inside maybe one of their altar rooms. And that I did in Brazil and I did it in Cuba. And I also had the opportunity to go to Haiti. A lot of, you know, ideas and stuff sometimes come from leads that other people gave me. So I worked on a project on um, Haitian voodoo. And, you know, during that time period, it's kind of funny because I was, I, you know, started out with set up photos, then I was like dealing with life. And then I started just kind of, I love going to the flea market. You know, I live in New York most of the time when I'm not upstate. And so I started like, looking around at early homemade costumes and this is like pre ebay and so i i talked to antique dealers oh i'm just looking for some old costumes i don't even want anything in a box set i just want something that looks like a rag or is just like really homemade and so that's sort of what i started doing thinking first i did it too for my niece and nephew i thought oh what fun we'll dress up in halloween costumes and take pictures you know how enthusiastic they were about that after one day. That was the end of that. But I did like continue to keep collecting the costumes. So I had a really good idea a little bit by then about what an early costume might look like. So then when all of a sudden, you know, eBay happened, it's like the floodgates opened up and I had access to costumes all around America. So I spent like so much crazy time, you know, on the internet, looking at different things and thinking, oh, that might be kind of cool. Um, and then just like, you know, the packages just kept arriving like daily for a while. And then at one point I had really well over 500 costumes in my possession in my apartment. Oh, wow. And it kind of got like people like, what is this, some installation you're living in or so then I decided, okay, that eventually I would like get a studio. So I ended up, I, I found a studio in New York City. It's kind of funny how I found the studio too, because uh, I went to a voodoo ceremony in New York in the space. And the person, this painter, Peter Schuf, who's a very well-known painter, uh, he kind of basically, I said, oh, you know, a studio for me. And he said, oh, come see me in the Chelsea Hotel tomorrow. And I did. And he said, I'll rent you half my studio. So then I got a studio, which was a few blocks from where I lived. And then I started like photographing all the different costumes, kind of just going kind of one by one through the things that interested me the most. Looking at mm -hmm. your website, you can see some of these costumes. And I think one of my favorite ones is the, the ghost mask that yeah. is from you estimate the 1930s sack or pillowcase yeah, yeah. And, and just so homemade i mean it, it still looks good but you can see that it's actually drawn you can see the um missing spaces and the cutout holes and um just how you know diy kind of this mask is is there are there certain costumes of your collection what did you say 500 that particularly stand out to you 
I'm kind of like you too. The things that interest me, I think, are the homemade things, the mm-hmm. earliest things. Even though a lot of the early mass-produced costumes are interesting too, because a lot of those were also kind of a lot of handwork went into like the mask that would be made of buckram. Then they'd be painted. So maybe I'd have the same mask and I could see that if I put five of them on the table, there were variations with them. But I do like the early homemade things, which mainly deal with the early themes of witches and ghosts and bats. I also really enjoyed kind of photographing the work because it was all done since I did it in a studio, it was done with a four by five view camera. And my good friend who also lives in Troy, Mark McCarty, he was doing a lot of light painting at the time. So he made me a light painting tool out of vacuum cleaner parts. And so I had some assistance. Um, and many times we would like sit in total darkness and we would be having this little let's talk about that ghost mask again, this little raggy thing. And you go, hello, and you, we'd sit in the dark, we'd talk to it and see if, you know, you, through the lighting and everything, if you could kind of make it come alive. And I really enjoyed that process of using also a lot of real, you know, low budget props. I don't believe in spending a lot of money to, you know, set up a photograph. I just think it's a, whatever. So we did that. And then we, it was kind of fun to be able to do you know, different lighting techniques with colored gels. And and then also for children, I wanted the book to be really kind of diverse. So I just kind of just kept looking around for children and more children, anywhere I could get kids to kind of, you know, pose for the photographs. And that usually worked out pretty well. Like the one time there's a Tweedledee and Tweedledum, I really needed like twins. I'm like, I need some freaking twins. Where am I going to find twins? And then they were like out in my neighborhood playing. And I spoke to the mother. I said, can you come over? They live nearby my studio. And yeah, the little Tweedledee and Tweedledums came over. So that was kind of interesting to figure out how to get all these kids and have them, again, be really of diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you learn anything about our history of Halloween through this? No, there's a lot of history through all the different costumes. I mean, you can look at different trends, too. You know, if you go through, like, when did this image appear? And I also, you know, I mean, I looked at, you know, Halloween is a very democratic kind of holiday. It's celebrated by everybody. It's not like a religious holiday. You don't have to be, you know, all people love all the kids love the, the Halloween and the trick-or-treat. So there's also a lot of history in there. I tried to do that in the book, like just comparing different kinds of wigs and stuff and the materials that things were made out of and what costumes people were looking at and what they were dressing up as. Well, Phyllis Galimbo, it's been such a pleasure and I could keep talking to you, but we are out of time before we let you go, though. I'd love to know what you're working on right now. Well, now I'm just still working, even though I did a, do a book, Mexico Mass Rituals. I'm I'm still photographing in Mexico, and I'm getting ready on Sunday to go back to Mexico to work on a show and also to uh, photograph for Day of the Dead once again in a different area. So Mexico is a place just full of so many great, amazing things. It seems like I think I'm done, and I just keep on going. Very exciting. So your website, Colombo.com, that's the best way to find your work. Oh, you are also on Instagram. 
Yeah, try and post something once a week on Instagram. And thanks for having me. It's always good to catch up with you. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis. To see photographs of those cool historic Halloween costumes and some of the many other photography projects that Phyllis Colombo has created from around the world, check the links at her website, www.galembo.com. And now joining us once again is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for our weekly discussion of weather and climate. Welcome back, Hugh. Here. Hey, good to have you. So, Hugh, last week a tropical storm named Otis hit Acapulco. I heard it intensified unexpectedly, slipping past all the weather forecasters. What's going on? Well, we've seen this um, movie over and over again many times. Um, warm waters, warm uh, Pacific waters, or in some cases Atlantic Ocean waters, this is what's doing it. It adds more fuel to the fire, more energy to the storm. And uh, we saw this as Hurricane Charlie in 04 that hit near Orlando. We had it with Wilma at the end of October that hit the other side of Mexico. And now this. Um, this is part of climate change. We're going to see more and more of these rapid intensification storms. And the Weather Service said it's the hardest thing to forecast in a, in a hurricane. It's not the past, but the intensity. And the intensity really matters. I am shocked that there weren't more deaths. There were 49, alas, I saw maybe give or take some. But the bottom line is uh, very fortunate that there weren't more deaths because it went from a hundred. It went from a minimal tropical storm to a Category 5, 165 mile hour sustained uh, Category 5 hurricane in 12 hours, which is pretty amazing. The only one that beat it was uh, Hurricane Patricia in 2015. That still holds the record, but we're just going to see more and more of this stuff going on with climate change. Speaking of hurricanes, can we talk about Hurricane Sandy that hit south of the capital region 11 years ago yesterday? Can you sure. tell the audiences it, what impacts it specifically had on our, on our region? Okay, well, luckily we got spared the worst of Sandy by far. Uh, we were very, very fortunate. It actually made three landfalls. It landfalled in Cuba as a Category 3, then Jamaica as a Category 2. But ironically, when it hit Brigantine, New Jersey, as a sub, as a barely a hurricane, probably a tropical storm, there's still debate on that. That's when it caused the most damage, but it was absorbed into a large upper low. For us, because the moisture all went to the west, and we were actually getting, moist, we were actually getting moisture drying uh, coming down from Nova Scotia, we actually got spared most of the rain and the strong winds. There were some gusty winds with some of the showers, but we really lucked out. The worst thing was the tidal surge along the um, Hudson. There was a, a record tidal surge at Poughkeepsie and, and all the way up to Albany. But really, that was about the worst of it. There was no other real damage. Schools were closed and like that just to play safe, but we really dodged the bullet with Sandy. I'm actually reading a book about how... Um a wooden tall ship tried to outrun Superstorm Sandy and didn't succeed and ended up sinking. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a pretty bad storm. And wasn't there a nor'easter that did some damage of its own a year before? Yeah, it's almost the exact same day in 2011. They called it the Halloween storm, but it actually came a day or two before Halloween. Uh, 
storm came up the coast. It was uh, very unusual. We had just enough cold air, a lot of moisture with it. Again, the greater capital region from North, from the uh, Albany north and west got spared. And I remember following, there was a mesoscale band putting down two inches an hour. I remember there were leaves on the trees like there are now. And that band got within 20 miles of Albany, say, and it kept wanting to come forward, but it kept getting bounced back. And it, it did that like three times. And m- most of the mesoscale models showed that, but, you know, you know some of the forecasters up the ante, uh, we went three to six. That was my forecast. Some went a little higher, but then they took it back. But we lucked out. We had some power outages, but just south of here, it was devastation. She had 15 inches of wet, heavy snow. Most uh, Half of Connecticut was in the dark during that storm uh, because of the very heavy, wet snow, like particularly in the Hartford area. So, again, another one that we kind of dodged a bullet on. Sounds like we're dodging a bullet on a lot of these storms. Well, not the one in 1987 we did. That one we took on the chin, but, you know, that was another time, another storm. Another storm. <laughs> so our weather switched by about 40 degrees in the last couple days. Phew. How does Halloween look, and what's the weather for the upcoming week, and will we ever see warm weather again? Well, we'll see warm weather again, trust me, but uh, probably not as warm as what we saw last week. Maybe not till next spring. Probably not, but... As far as Halloween goes, the good news for the kids is that it will be dry. That's that's you know that's in the bank, uh, but it'll be chilly. It'll be one of the coldest Halloweens we've had in a while, and, and I, I think a better part of a decade or more. Uh, temperatures will be down around forty degrees. So uh, just make sure the uh, parents have your kids uh, bundled appropriately because it's going to be mighty chilly. Burn Compare her. that to two thousand nineteen when we hit seventy five on the evening. Halloween, we also had showers too, and that was a record high. We won't be anywhere near the record low of 18. We won't get any snow. We've had a tenth of an inch of snow, I think, back in the 40s somewhere in Halloween, and again, no precipitation. So that's good. So we're good, good, good to go. Just bundle them up for the uh, now. Then we're going to have to watch the storm on Wednesday. Should go offshore, but the upper level portion of, of the storm. Uh, which won't phase with the surface storm until it gets east of us. That could bring us a few snow showers on November 1st. You heard that right. And there could even be a dusting in a few spots in the higher terrain. I don't think it's going to be a problem. It doesn't look it. We'll keep an eye on it, but uh, it'll be still very chilly. But after that, we're going to moderate back into the 50s, which will feel nice after what we've had now. Because, yeah, we dropped quite a bit from Friday and uh, Saturday's the day the front went through, and you, you start to feel the temperature change. And by Sunday, boy, it was... It was a shock to the system. There's no doubt about it. Temperature stayed in the 40s all day, and basically that did the same thing today. We had a couple of waves go by, but that fortunately all that rain is going to be out of here just in time for Halloween. So we're going off daylight savings time just before our next uh, our program next week. Right. When do we spend the daylight that we saved? I'm sorry. What was that again? We, we, we don't. We don't. We when don't do we spend the daylight. the daylight that we saved? Yeah. We we um. Basically, you don't when you do the daylight saving time and the and the standard time, but you're still dealing with the same amount of daytime. You know, daylight. It's just how you skew it. And the reason why they extended an extra week was to give the Halloweeners, you know, the young kids, a chance to go out when it wasn't totally dark yet. So probably Val. Uh, but that's why I personally wouldn't want to have daylight time all year round because I remember in 74 we had it and going to school in the dark was kind of scary. I mean, we're talking pitch black. We're not even talking like there's a little daylight. It was absolutely dark. So 
uh, for kids, that's dangerous in my opinion. So I kind of like it the way it is. And we do standard time in the winter and then we switch in late March or mid-March, whatever, back to daylight time. Well, with the last about 30 seconds left, can you tell us if there's any snow in the forecast? Well, we got, as I mentioned, we might see a few flakes on Wednesday. Uh, not out of the question, but hopefully no accumulating snow in the valley, maybe a dusting in the hills. That's what it looks like right now. And after that, there's no, there's no threat of snow in the next 10 days. That, but yeah, it looks pretty quiet right at this moment. Well, thank you here for joining us once again. We look forward to talking with you next week for another exciting episode. You got it. All right, great. Good deal. Take care. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks a lot, Hugh. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel, thankful for my co-host, Captain Kalen, doing double duty as engineer for this episode. Thanks, pal. You're welcome, and I'm Kalen McPherson. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Besides co-hosting, Bria Barthel helped with the headlines, producing segment, and even wrote the script today. Thank you so much for all you do, Bria. Other contributions to today's episode are Mark Dunley for headlines and a segment production, plus EP Elizabeth EP Press and Cena Bazilla Hickey for their segments, and as always, Hugh Johnson for our weekly weather look, our weekly look at the weather. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a one-time or even a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.